Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, it's almost Christmas. So for a little treat, we've got the December IFRIC meeting. He's back. He's one of my favorites. Welcome back, Carsten Gansauger. Thank you, Ruth. Glad to be back. And Carson, this is not my last ever podcast, but this is the last ever time we're going to be talking about the IFRIC because I'm handing on my hosting duty. So I'm a little bit sad. I'm sad too, Ruth. Uh, certainly, it has been a big, big pleasure to work with you on the on these podcasts and other areas. So also very sad uh, to see you go. Me too. But may, maybe they'll let me back one day. Maybe it's I'm going to tell myself we're just not <laughs> doing it for a while and I'll be back. You can still ring me and talk to me about the IFRIC if you want to. I will. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it was an action-packed agenda on the December meeting. Um, and we, because of that, and we've only got 20 minutes, we're not actually going to cover all the topics today. So we're just going to maybe cover some of the meteor topics so let's start at the beginning, although I think I'm going off piste in terms of the order of the agenda. But let's start with supply chain financing. So we talked about this, I think, almost all the way back to April. This has started to might have been even further back. But we've been taught you, you obviously at the IFRIC have been talking about reverse factoring of supply chain financing for a while. Tentative agenda decision went out, I think, in June. And you've had 22 comment letters back on the tentative agenda, or the TAD. I'm not forgetting our trademark name. So tell us what happened at the IFRIC on this one. Yeah, sure. So, so I think this is really quite a hot topic, and certainly in the focus of regulators. You know, however, as we have already talked about this in previous podcasts, I wasn't planning to go into much detail on this topic. So, just as a quick reminder, reverse factoring transactions are arrangements involving three parties. You know, an entity that purchases a good or services, a supplier providing those goods or services, and a financial institution. And in such an arrangement, the financial institution agrees to pay um, amounts the entity owes to suppliers and the entity agrees to pay the financial institution at the same date or a later date than suppliers are paid. So essentially, the submission is asking which presentation and disclosure requirements apply around reverse factoring transactions. The analysis in the agenda decision essentially covers three areas. The first one is presentation of such arrangements in the balance sheet. The second one, presentation in the cash flow statement. And third, related disclosure requirements. Now, as I said, I wasn't planning to go into any detail on, on those. I would just say on a very high level, a few things to keep in mind for entities that, you know, that have set up programs that involve the settlement of trade liabilities under a reverse factoring program. First, there are existing IFRS requirements for presentation both in the statement of financial position and the cash flow statement, and also existing disclosure requirements that need to be considered for entities involved in reverse factoring. So if you're interested in details, I recommend you have a look at the June IFRIC update or at the December IFRIC updates once it is out. And second, investors are highly interested in information on these programs. So while there certainly is some judgment involved around the way entities present such programs in their financial statements, I think providing transparency to stakeholders around these programs is key. And, and finally, it's pro probably worth mentioning two more things. You know, at the June meeting, the IFRIC has also discussed possible standard setting to develop you know, additional 
specific disclosure requirements for the supply chain financing arrangements. So the, so the board will likely consider at some point next year, you know, whether to add a narrow scope disclosure project on this matter. And second, cash flow presentation has been identified as a potential project as part of the 2020 agenda consultation. So the board is also considering whether to add a project that would address presentation of cash flows. And so if the board does decide to pick up this project, this would likely include presentation of cash flows related to supply chain financing. So watch out for possible standard setting in this area that may add more requirements aiming to further increase transparency around reverse factoring. Brilliant. Thank you. So lots of things for people to sort of keep an eye on and also read. So the December update will give you some context and obviously June. Now, this was a obviously in June, it was a tentative agenda decision and you got letters in. I presume that there were no major changes and, you know, it was supportive of the agenda decision and it got finalised. Well, yes, on a high level overall, yes. And uh, so the agenda decision, you know, will be subject to board approval, obviously will be finalised with only a few wording changes. Okay, brilliant. And then like you said, there could also be actually a standard setting project around the disclosure. And the as part of the agenda consultation, they're looking at cash flow statements, potentially. Really helpful. Okay, so moving on to the next topic, IS1. And this topic is around an amendment that has been issued on the classification of debt, whether it's current or non-current. It was issued on the 1st of January, but then it was actually the effective date was deferred in July this year. So the effective date is now 1st of January 2023. How did this actually come about, Carson? Because maybe I'd say it's a little bit more unusual. Yes, that, that's right. So, th- so this is essentially about, you know, whether debt should be classified as current or non-current when the timing of repayment of, of, of debt is affected by debt covenants. So as you said, this is, this is not yet mandatory, right? The effective date is uh, 1st of January, you know, p- annual reporting periods beginning on or after 1 January 2023, early application being permitted. So it's not yet mandatory. But the issue, you know, since the amendments were issued, it has already become apparent that different interpretations are arising in practice related to the requirements for determining whether an entity has a right to the first settlement of a liability for at least 12 months after the the end of the reporting periods. So stakeholders are saying that, you know, these different interpretations may result in inconsistent application of the new IS-1 requirements. So... As you said, it's a bit of an unusual background because we did not actually have a formal submission on the issue. Rather, questions have been raised in this area informally by stakeholders. And so rather than actually wait for a submission to come in, this has been addressed on a timely and proactive basis to make sure people are aware of the requirements. I actually think it's quite helpful for the committee to be proactive and to make sure people are aware of the upcoming requirements sufficiently in advance before these new requirements become effective when it has already become apparent that there is a significant risk of inconsistent application. Yeah, I feel like this is like breaking news, exciting stuff, Carsten. Very different. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I interrupted you then. Tell us us about the, the, tell us about the issue. So I, I was planning to go into a bit of detail on this one to actually make sure, you know, it's actually 
understood well. So let me start first with some background on what the requirements in the revised IS-1 actually say on this point. And I was then planning to illustrate these requirements with some simple examples to convey what this actually means in practice. So let's start with some of the theory. Essentially, when you know the committee discussed how an entity determines whether it has the right to defer settlement of a liability for at least 12 months after the reporting period, when the right to defer settlement is subject to the entity complying with you know, specific conditions and compliance with these specified conditions is tested at a date after the end of the reporting period. So for context, paragraph 69 of IS-1 specifies that an entity classifies a liability as current when it does not have the right at the end of the reporting period to defer settlement of the liability for at least 12 months after the reporting period. And you know the new revised guidance in paragraph 72a goes on to say that this right to defer settlement of a liability must exist at the end of the reporting period then goes on to say if the right to defer settlement is subject to the entity complying with specified conditions, you know, such as, for example, covenants, the right exists at the end of the reporting period only if the entity complies with those conditions at the end of the reporting period. It then goes on to say that the entity must comply with the conditions at the end of the reporting period even if the lender does not test compliance until a later date. And this really is the key sentence about the discussion. So you must have, you must comply with the conditions at the end of the reporting period, even if the lender does not test compliance until a later date. So this essentially means that if a credit arrangement includes covenants that are tested within the next 12 months after the reporting date, an entity would need to comply with those covenants already at the reporting date. So I think this is probably easiest to understand, you know, using some examples. So, so let me illustrate this using two simple examples from the related staff paper. Now, first example is, you know, assume you have a loan that's repayable in five years and becomes repayable on demand if a particular covenant, say a working capital ratio is not met at the testing dates. Now let's say, the ratio is tested only once at 31st of March and the loan requires a working capital ratio above one, one, let's say above 1.0 at the end of March. And the entity, now let's assume the entity's working capital at the reporting date, 31st of December is 0 0.9. So let's assume that the entity expects the working capital ratio to be above the required threshold of 1.0 at 31st March. Now the guidance in revised IS-1 would require the loan to be classified as a current liability because based on the conditions at the balance sheet date, the working capital ratio is not met. And this would apply regardless of whether the entity expects to meet the covenants at the testing date on 31st March. So even if you're not in breach of covenant yet, as of 31st December, because covenants are only tested contractually at a later date, so in this example, 31st of March, and even if you expect to meet the covenants at the future testing date, you would need to classify the li liability as a current liability. Now, another example is, let's, let's again assume a loan that's repayable in five years, and that becomes repayable on demand if a covenant ratio is not met at any of those these testing dates. Now, let's assume in this new example that the covenants are tested twice a year, on 31st of December on, and 30th of June of each year. 
And let's assume the loan requires a working capital ratio again above 1.0 at 31st of December and above 1.1 at 30th of June. And let's assume at the balance sheet date on the 31st of December, the entity's working capital ratio is 1.05. So it, it's above the, the required threshold for 31st December, but below the required threshold for 30th of June. So in this fact pattern, the entity also does not have the right to defer at the end of the reporting period to defer settlement of the loan for at least 12 months. And this is true regardless of the fact that the working capital ratio is above the ratio required for 31st December. And even if the entity expects the working capital ratio to be above 1.1 in this example. So even if the entity expects to comply with this governance in the next 12 months after the reporting date. And this is because the revised IS-1 explicitly states that an entity must comply with the conditions at the end of the reporting period, even if the lender does not test compliance until a later date. And so the entity must comply with all covenants that are tested in the next 12 months already at the reporting date. So finally, I should perhaps mention that this discussion very much focused on covenants that are related to the financial position of an entity. That is, the discussion did not cover covenants that are related to the financial performance of an entity. So for example, covenants related to EBITDA. Uh, also, the discussion did not cover any other covenants that are not related to the financial position of an entity, such as, for example, non-financial covenants. So the examples used were quite simple, and I think it's clear that the analysis will often be more complex in practice. However, I, I do think these simplistic examples are quite helpful to, illust to illustrate the point and to make people aware of these new presentation requirements in IS-1. Brilliant. So key thing I'm listening to there is all about the reporting date. Even if you're checking later, look at the, what's going on at the reporting date. And like you said, I think the... The IFRIC agenda decision is really good because it goes through three different examples, explains why they get to the answer. It's almost, you know, like a little Q&A section. So you're right, in reality, things could be more complicated, but at least it's a good starting point for people to look at. So I would, you know, it is a really helpful agenda decision if people have, you know, are specifically looking at this amendment. Yeah, and keep in mind that this is only mandatory in 2023. So there's still quite a bit of time. A while. But, yeah, but I still think it's quite helpful to address it now because obviously, you know, credit facility, uh, facilities are negotiating all the way along, right? So not necessarily in 2022 or 2023. So if you're, especially if you're in credit negotiations with, you, you know, with your banks, um, I think that's something definitely to already keep in mind today. We'll have to remind people when we get to 2022 <laughs> and to, that this amazing agenda decision exists. So we'll keep reminding you people so you remember. Okay, so that was the IS1. Was there anything else you wanted to say on that one before we move on to configuration of cloud? No, let's move on. That's fine. Perfect. Okay, so the last one we're going to talk around is an IS38 question. And this was a submission. And it was around, effectively, can you capitalize costs on, um, you know, cloud computing? So where you have to maybe configure it to your own systems or customize it for your own use, can you capitalize those costs as intangible assets? So maybe, again, give us a little bit of a background and then where the IFRIT got to. 
Yeah, sure, that's right. So, so let me give you some more details about the fact pattern, which is, you know, where a customer enters into a software as a service arrangement or SaaS arrangement with a supplier, which conveys to the customer the right to receive access to the supplier's application software for specified term. So that right to receive access to that supplier's software does not provide the customer with the software asset at the contract date. And therefore, you know, the asset to the software is a service that the customer receives over the contract term. So that's the underlying software, which is not a software asset of the customer. Now, the customer incurs upfront costs of configuring or customizing the supplier's application software to which it receives access. So essentially, the submission is asking how the customer should account for these costs that it incurs for the configuration or customization in relation, in relation to receiving access to the supplier's software. So where the underlying software itself is not recognized as a software asset by the customer. So in analyzing the request, the committee is essentially considered two questions. First, whether in relation to these costs, the customer would recognize an IS-38 intangible asset. And second, if an intangible asset is not recognized, how the customer accounts for these configuration or customization costs. Uh, so I was planning to, to, to go through both of these questions. Brilliant. So if we, start, if we start with the first one, does the customer recognize an, 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 an intangible asset applying IS-38? So obviously that would require that you know, the entity can demonstrate that the item meets both the definition of an intangible assets and meets the recognition criteria for intangible assets in IS-38. And in, in, the fact, in this fact pattern that I just described, the supplier controls the application software to which the customer has access. So essentially the committee observed that, it, you know, in the, in the SaaS arrangement that was described in the submission, the customer often would not recognize an intangible asset. There may be some limited circumstances where the customer might recognize an intangible asset, but that depends very much on the nature and output of the co configuration or customization performed. So in many cases, the customer would not recognize an intangible asset. And so this leads to the second question, what would you do if you if you don't recognize an intangible asset? How would you then account for the customization or configuration cost? And this is probably the, the interesting bit of the most interesting bit of the discussion and the most relevant in practice, I think. So if the customer does not recognize an intangible asset, it would apply the requirements in IS 38, I think it's paragraph 68 to 70, which essentially say that the customer should recognize an expense when it receives the services, so the configuration or customization services. And it also specifies that services are received when they are performed by a supplier in, in accordance with the contract to deliver these services to the entity and not when an entity uses them to deliver another services. So therefore, in, this, in assessing when to recognize the cost as an expense, IS-38 requires the customer to determine when the supplier performs the, the services. And um, now IS-38 does not include specific requirements that deal with the identification of the services to the customer, you know, that the customer receives and when the supplier performs those services. So therefore, and I think that's the key observation, the entity would apply the hierarchy in IS-8 
and consider the applicability of you know the requirements and IFRS standards that deal with similar and related issues. And I think the key here is that the committee observed that IFRS 15 does include requirements that suppliers apply in identifying the promised goods or services in a contract with a customer and when those promised goods or services are transferred to the customer. So in, in this fact pattern, those requirements in IFRS 15 deal with issues similar and related to those faced by the customer. And I think that's the key message here. IFRS 15 does deal with related requirements uh, to determine which services are received, the identification of the services, and when those services are received. And now you would look at the guidance in IFRS 15 and essentially you know, look at whether the configuration or customized service services are distinct or whether they are not distinct, applying the guidance in IFRS 15, which deal with you know, similar and related issues. So overall, I thought this was quite an interesting issue and, and an interesting debate because first of all, these arrangements have become quite common. So this is certainly a widespread and relevant issue for many preparers. And second, it's a very good example of how entities would apply the ISA hierarchy in the absence of specific guidance. We actually had quite a bit of debate at the committee whether we would go beyond the requirements in IFRS with this agenda decision. I think at the end of the day, there's a balance to be met in terms of making sure that we provide helpful guidance in answering the question that was asked, but also making sure that we do not change or add to the requirements in IFRS. So personally, I felt that the wording in the proposed agenda decision was really well drafted in achieving this balance. And after some intense discussion, the committee agreed to go ahead on this basis and issue a TED with only some slight wording changes. So overall, I'm quite happy with this tentative agenda decision, as I think it strikes the right balance and does not and does give some helpful guidance for an issue that's clearly relevant and widespread in practice. Intense discussions. This sounds like a meaty one as part of your agenda, but I'm pleased that you are happy with the tentative agenda decision there. So again, lots of helpful guidance around do you have an intangible and then how you could use the IS8 hierarchy to maybe use IFRS 15 to help you understand the accounting. Okay, brilliant. That was really helpful. And that's a tentative agenda decision. So people can comment if they don't agree. Like you said, it's quite prevalent at the moment. So you might get some comment letters in in that area. Will you get 22 like you did supply chain financing? I felt like that was quite a lot. I'm hoping so. I'm hoping (laughs) so. It's always good to get feedback and we can, uh, you know, to get the input from stakeholders. So I encourage everyone to to send, send in comment letters and challenge our thinking. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Carsten. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for taking us through all those juicy gossip, the IFRIC. And they're obviously the IFRIC update will be on the IFRS website if you want more information. And thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.